Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Um, Matthias is here with us, and uh, we've had a chance to connect a little bit before today. But, uh, of course, many people, and some people I know, were here because of actually hearing your podcast and uh, hearing that you were going to be here this weekend. And so uh, Matthias is a writer, consultant, and the host of Queerology, a podcast on belief and being. And uh, he's been uh, uh, featured at many conferences and events. He's been connected to Generous Space Ministries before and the retreat that they've had. And uh, he has uh, two degrees, one in theology and culture and the other in counseling psychology. And so he's really uh, has a mission to be able to create inclusion and to help people on that journey to being included. And so we welcome to to the stage today. Thank you. I'll be honest, uh, when Greg and Kenny asked me to speak about spiritual gifts, the first thing I thought was, I am a spiritual gift. (laughs) So, uh, (laughs) uh, I've been binge-watching Queer Eye recently. Uh, Who watches it? Yes? Okay, good. I'm glad. If you don't watch it, you need to get on Netflix. Maybe even now, like, you could leave and go watch that. Um, And, yeah, uh, I think Jonathan is who I want to be when I grow up. So, that's, right? Um... (laughs) Can we pray for a moment? Um, May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I'm so excited to be with you all today. Um, I was talking to Kathy Baldock uh, a couple days ago, who spoke here last year, uh, and she said, you're going to love those people. Uh, You're going to have a wonderful time, uh, and I definitely feel that this spiritual gift of hospitality uh, is here with you all, so thank you. Um, And have you all been to Purebred downtown here? Anyone? Okay, a few of you. It's like this this dreamland of pastries. And (laughs) I feel like I turn into everything that a person from the U.S. uh, dreams of becoming in there, which is, like, overweight and rude. Um, That's, like, (laughs) I sit there and eat and eat and eat, like, the only words coming out of my mouth being more and get out of my way. Like, that's, (laughs) and you all think I'm kidding. Like, that's, (laughs) Uh, so spiritual gifts, what a topic, um, It's tempting to stand up here and name everything that I see in this room, in us as queer people, in queer culture, as a spiritual gift. Um, The spiritual gift of throwing shade, for example. Um, Actually, this morning when I was was putting together a takeout order from Purebred, uh, after I'd put my seventh piece of cake in the box, uh, I said, I think that's all. And the guy looked at me and he said, oh, that's all? Uh, <laughs> uh, y'all are like, I can't tell if he's lying, and we're in a church, so of course I'm lying. That's like, yeah. Um, <laughs> but I, I truly do believe that throwing shade is a spiritual gift. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure if that's what Greg and Kenny had in mind when they asked me to speak here, uh, but Jesus was a master at it. So I think that's a pretty good place to begin. Uh, if, I'm, I'm going to do the whole like kind of sermon thing. If y'all have Bibles with you, um, you pull out your phone. There might be some in the pews. Don't feel like you have to. Um, I'm going to read some scripture, though. Uh, Matthew chapter 23. Uh, and, and as you kind of turn to that, I, I do want to say I'm aware that this is a spirituality conference, uh, but I don't want to assume that everyone in this room identifies as Christian or looks towards the Christian scriptures for guidance. Um, so I'm going, to, I'm going to be drawing on those texts in my talk, um, but I'm also aware of how much hurt and how much pain can be found in the way that these texts have been used. Um, so here's permission to tune out, uh, to roll your eyes, to feel uncomfortable and upset. Uh, I think there's a lot of wisdom to be found in these texts, but I also think that we can agree that one of the primary sources of our oppression, 
uh, and violence towards our people comes from this very text. Um, so do with that what you will and take care of yourselves uh, in, in this space. Uh, but I find something very subversive about being able to turn to these texts and speak liberation and freedom from them. Uh, so whether you believe it or distrust it, whether you hate it or you're somewhere in between, uh, let's see if we can maybe find, um, my iPad is like flipping every time I move. Um, <laughs> let's see if we can maybe find some nuggets of spaciousness in here. Uh, so Matthew chapter 23 Jesus is about to throw it down. Um, I'm starting in verse 4, and this is from the contemporary English version. Jesus is speaking uh, about the spiritual leaders of the time. They pile heavy burdens on people's shoulders and won't lift a finger to help. Everything they do is just to show off in front of others. They even make a big show of wearing scriptures on their foreheads and arms. They wear big tassels for everyone to see. And skipping down to verse 13. You Pharisees and teachers of the law are in for trouble. You're nothing but show-offs. You lock people out of the kingdom of heaven. You won't go in yourselves, and you keep others from going in. That's some shade, isn't it? Like, Jesus is just, ouch, Jesus. Um, <laughs> and he spends the entire ch- this entire chapter in the library reading these spiritual leaders for filth. Um, he's pointing out the difference between what these people preach versus what they actually practice. And I can imagine that as I read that passage, certain people might have popped into each one of your minds. Uh, we're not going to name names here, uh, but I know for me, it's really hard to read Matthew 23 and not think of a list of people. Uh, I can even think of entire political parties, uh, but that's for another conference. So, uh, and, and while I'm standing here uh, calling what Jesus is doing, throwing shade, uh, there's another wor- word that I think can apply here as well, uh, and that word is discernment. Uh, and when, I, when we look at the New Testament list of spiritual gifts, uh, discernment is on that list. And I'm not sure that any of us will ever be quite as good as Jesus at, di- at, at discernment. I mean, he is God, after all. Um, I do think that many LGBTQ2 people are have very fine-tuned discernment meters, uh, or bullshit meters, uh, because we've had to put up with a lot of bullshit. So here's what we're going to do today. Uh, first, we're going to look at some of the spiritual gifts with, listed within the Christian New Testament, uh, ways that I believe that queer people embody them. Uh, then we're going to explore some things that I believe uh, are spiritual gifts that are unique to queer people uh, due to our particular like locatedness in this world. Uh, and then finally, we're going to try to answer this so what, like why does this matter question. Uh, does that sound good? People with me? Great. So there's, there's lots of lists within uh, the New Testament of spiritual gifts. Uh, there's three primary ones. Uh, the one that, that drew me in the most is from Romans chapter 12. And again, y'all can turn there if you want. Uh, again, no pressure. Uh, but I love this passage because I feel like it's such a beautiful vision of what the church is supposed to be. Uh, The Apostle Paul is writing the church in Rome, uh, and he starts out in verse 4 by painting a picture. Uh, And I'm reading from the New International Version now just to kind of keep you on your toes. Um, But he writes, For just just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, so in the divine, though many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. One body, many members, different gifts, all connected. Uh, one of the first things I love about this passage is its emphasis, is its emphasis on how connected we all are. Uh, in the field of interpersonal neurobiology, which I studied a lot in my counseling degree, uh, they continue to prove again and again and again that we don't exist in our singularity. Uh, instead, we exist within relationship to others. Uh, we, we cannot have a personhood without being in relationship with other people. Uh, and as, as Paul points out, we're not all the same. There's vast diversity among us. Uh, every, um, even, even within our own bodies, there's diversity. Uh, every single piece is vital, though. So we, so we can't cut some, something or someone out uh, without affecting the entire system. Everything is interconnected. And this passage speaks directly to that fact. 
This is what makes isolation so damaging. Uh, not only do we deeply damage and even kill those who are being isolated, uh, those who are doing the isolating get, get hurt as well. No one wins in this situation. And I'll, I'll make my point really clear here, because uh, I'm kind of alluding to it, but by isolating queer people from the church, by kicking us out, saying that we don't belong, or policing how we have to show up in religious spaces in order to be accepted, we are causing great damage. Damage that is completely avoidable, uh, but damage that is ripping the church apart from the inside out. No one is winning, and we're all being harmed. But you all know that. I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here. Um, Paul, Paul continues in this passage by giving us a list of spiritual gifts. Uh, they're gifts that I see poured out within the lives of LGBTQ2 people everywhere I go. The gift of prophecy, the gift of service, of teaching, the gift of encouragement, the gift of giving, the gift of leadership, and the gift of mercy. Uh, with each of these gifts, Paul uses, Paul includes the instructions to use them. And that's going to be my challenge to us today. Uh, as queer people, we're deeply gifted, uh, yet oftentimes we hide our gifts. Uh, we hide our very selves in order to fit in or to not stir the boat uh, or because we've been told our gifts aren't qualified. Uh, yet we have gifts. Many of us know our giftings. Uh, so what would it look like for us to use them boldly and unapologetically? What would it look like to stand on the foundation of our faith, whatever it is, or our spirituality, and say, I'm here, I'm queer, I'm not going away, I have a place here. These are my gifts, and I'm going to use them. Of course, there's, there's always the consideration of safety, uh, and sometimes for the sake of safety, we do have to hide. Uh, but for those of us who are in safer environments, uh, every time we stand up and use our gifts, when we make ourselves known, uh, the more safe it becomes for our siblings who can't speak up right now. Uh, we're interconnected, uh, and those of us who can speak must. So I want to focus on this list of spiritual gifts uh, that the Apostle Paul gives us, because I think it's, it's a beautiful framework, like I said, to talk about the ways that queer people move in the world. And in some ways, especially for those of us who grew up within the church or within religious contexts, we have been forced into these gifts. We haven't had a choice in developing some of these. Uh, for better or for worse, our, env our environments have forged these gifts within us. They're the byproduct of us choosing to stay within hostile spaces. Uh, they're the remains of, an exi of, of existing in a world that is designed for specific types of people with specific bodies. And for that reason, I'm, I'm not going to paint these gifts as some kind of great virtue. Uh, these gifts carry profound cost for many of us who are oppressed. Uh, and if you find yourself sitting there uh, resisting or resenting and resisting the, the fact that you've had to develop these gifts in your own lives, let me be the first to agree. It, it sucks. Um, and there's, there's beauty even in that. Uh, so prophecy, service, teaching encouragement, I don't have enough fingers, <laughs> giving, leadership, and mercy. Seven gifts. Some of these carry a lot of baggage for me, especially that first one, prophecy, the gift of prophecy. Uh, we're going to start there, though. Uh, and a couple years ago, I, I, um, my parents live in this little cabin in, in northwestern Montana, uh, kind of close to Glacier National Park in that area, and it's, it's gorgeous. Um, and it, I, I went back home for Thanksgiving, it's been a while since I've been home. Uh, and because my parents are missionaries, uh, and so they've they lived overseas for quite a while. They moved back to the States, um, but they still do missions work here. Here, not, or not here, we're in Canada. Um, but they do, they, do, they do missions work in the States, um, and they do a lot of travel. So I don't, I don't get to see them very often. It makes holidays hard. Um, there's some complications within family dynamics as well. Um, so first time back for Thanksgiving for quite a while. Uh, and, and I walk into the living room, and I see this stack of books sitting right next to my dad's chair. Uh, and they were books with titles like uh, Agents of the Apocalypse, uh, and, and books claiming to match up the current news cycles with biblical prophecy. Uh, and I saw them, and I rolled my eyes, uh, because 
Now, oh, there's a lot of reasons, but, <laughs> but <laughs> I ignored them for most of my trip there. Uh, but soon my curiosity got the better of me. Uh, and when my dad wasn't around, I kind of opened one up and, and peeked into it. Uh, the one that, that was explicitly focused on like taking news headlines and trying to pair it with like passages from Revelation for some reason or another. And, um, and it was one of the most homophobic things that I have read in years. Uh, and, I had I had forgotten I think because I've been existing in the, in these kind of spaces for so long um, I had forgotten what some of that I, I would call it propaganda um, how explicitly homophobic it is to call those of us who identify as queers LGBTQ two um, agents of the apocalypse like here we are um, and I was once again reminded that our very existence, um, our claim to be queer people who stand firm within our faith and in our spirituality, uh, our convictions, uh, that is, is for many people confirmation of this quote-unquote prophecy, this idea that the, the end times are near, uh, and, and we're the ones who are ushering it in. Uh, and for me, when I was growing up, I was taught that prophetic literature found within these Christian scriptures all pointed to this end times, this apocalypse, this, this horrible thing that's going to be happening, everyone's going to die except for certain people. Um, and, and my family's tradition isn't charismatic, um, but any mention of the gift of prophecy uh, was written off as something that, that kind of existed 2,000 years ago. They, they wrote these books of the Bible. We can read them, we can decode them, and, and figure out what's going to happen in the future. Um, that, that was my context. Um, and in going to my undergraduate school kind of changed that up for a, a little bit for me because when I, when I read about this gift of prophecy, uh, I was raised believing it, does, it doesn't exist anymore. Um, prophecy is a foretelling of the future, uh, and, and it doesn't really, we can't really trust anyone who claims to, to foretell the future, except for you know, maybe this book, Agents of the Apocalypse. Um, but, um, but then I went to undergrad, and I went to a small uh, conservative Christian school in... Northwest Arkansas. Uh, so in the hotbed of the South, uh, this school was, was a little bit of a more liberal haven, but it, it still was a conservative evangelical school. Um, but while I was there, I had an experience or a couple experiences of having people speak prophecy over me uh, from, from their more Pentecostal charismatic traditions. Um, and that... Th- that was something that I, I suddenly realized, like, I, I can't write this, this oft as a gifting. Um, it, was, it was powerful for me. Um, and, and I'm not really going to get into that. Like, I'm not, I'm not really here to debate end times theology or whether or not, like, the, this gift of prophecy, when we think about, like, a, a foretelling of the future, whether that exists today. Um, that, that's not what I'm here for. Um, but... Um, I simply say that to kind of to illustrate like how this this word prophecy has held an element of terror for me in my life and a little bit of an element of like awe and wonder. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot wrapped up in that word. But as I started doing my master's degree in theology um, and started to dive into the study of prophecy, uh, I discovered another definition of the word that, that spoke to me. And, and this definition was truth-telling. Uh, especially truth-telling in the face of oppression. Uh, so, so many biblical theologians, uh, and honestly, this is a little bit ridiculous. I think they're probably all like, I, I don't know, but they call themselves biblical theologians as opposed and against the systematic the- theology. So it's, it's, this, it's this own branch of theology that, they, that they've named. We're, we're biblical theologians. Um, but, but these biblical theologians reject the idea that prophecy is a revealing of the future. Uh, instead, they claim that prophecy is the unveiling of the now. Uh, they, they say that prophetic literature is meant to hold up a mirror to us uh, and to society, uh, and that its purpose is not to tell us what is going to happen, but instead give us a long, hard look at what needs to change right now. Uh, so basically, think of kind of like the function of our like dystopian literature in today's age. Uh, Orwell's 1984, Atwell's The Handmaid's Tale, uh, those books kind of shine like a harsh light on, on our society. Uh, they call us into action. They're warnings of what could be uh, if things don't change now. 
that's kind of a cartoonish version, but that's how some biblical theologians see see this idea of prophecy within within the, the Christian scriptures. Uh, and, and regardless of your views on this, uh, what's important here is this definition, speaking truth to power, working against the oppression in the now. Uh, and, and please hear me well. Uh, I'm not saying that this is the only definition of prophecy. Uh, I'm not discounting the incredibly rich and mystical traditions of prophecy found within certain branches of the church and within spirituality. Um, there's complexity here, uh, and I, and I want to highlight that. Uh, those are things that I can't speak to. But what I can speak to is the idea that maybe, just maybe, one meaning of this gift of prophecy that Paul mentions is the gift of telling the truth. The gift of standing up in a non-affirming community and saying, I'm bisexual. The gift of walking out the door shaking with nail polish and makeup on for the first time and continuing to walk down that sidewalk. The gift of saying, this is me. And this is a spiritual gift that I think queer people live out with our very bodies, our differences on display for the world to see, for the church to see. We're mirrors reflecting back the injustice of our systems. And every day when we choose to show up in the world as queer people, we're speaking truth. Our very existence challenging oppression and power dynamics, the gift of prophecy. We speak to what will continue to happen if the church doesn't change. Our transgender siblings are being murdered at the hands of our theology, our suicide rates. We speak against those things, and we speak truth to those who wield their texts as weapons. We speak prophecy. Woe to you who pile heavy burdens on people's shoulders, who lock people out of the kingdom of heaven, who keep our people from going in. If we use this definition of prophecy, we are prophets. The gift of service. I'm going to be honest. Like Some of these gifts I kind of hate that, that Paul included. Because uh, I think we all know how this gift has been used to manipulate and guilt people into teaching Sunday school. Um, <laughs> right? This is, this is kind of like the gift of celibacy. Like It, it does exist. But maybe it's not as common as certain people claim. Uh, it's, it's the catch-all, the, oh, you're attracted to people of the same gender. You, you must have the gift of celibacy. Or, or, oh, you're a woman. You must have the gift of service. Um, <laughs> as, as a side note, I, I'm, not, I'm not knocking those who kind of feel a persuasion towards celibacy. Um, I, I, and I want to make that clear. I, I know when I hear theology of celibacy, my kind of bad theology meter raises high. Uh, when someone's telling me about their call to, to celibacy, uh, my, my response usually is, well, just, just give it a couple years. Um, I, I in no way believe in a universal call toward celibacy for a certain group of people. Uh, I, th- I think that theology is bad and harmful and, and destructive. Um, but I, I think we absolutely must create space for our queer siblings of faith uh, who believe they're being asked to take on singleness as a vocation. Um, I, I, there's a long tradition of celibacy within uh, our church traditions. It's as old as the Christian faith. Uh, and, I, and I don't think we often do a great job of, of crafting intentional spaces and support for our siblings who do truly believe um, that, they're, that they're being called towards singleness. Uh, so, so that takes a little bit of a holding of nuance in there, um, and, and it gets complex. There is a ton of bad theology wrapped up in this idea that, that queer people have to stay single. Not advocating for that, but I think we do need to be aware of these people who, who truly believe that they're, that they're called towards celibacy. Um, and I think as queer people, we, we do have some practice with nuance, so we can, we can hold those things in tension. Uh, when I think about the gifts of service, uh, I think about all of the queer people who have chosen to stay within community instead of coming out. The queer people who quietly serve in their churches uh, as choir directors, as volunteers, as pastors, as music directors, uh, knowing full well that if they were to be honest about who they are, they wouldn't be able to keep those roles in their churches. 
And I, I know I was just talking about nuance. Uh, and let's, let's add some more in here by saying these systems that perpetuate the need for queer people to stay quiet about their sexual orientations and gender identities in order to fit in, those systems are evil. Uh, and we must actively work to destroy them, to stand up against injustice in every form. It's not okay that a gay youth pastor has to hide an entire part of himself in order to keep his position at a church. It's incredibly unhealthy. Uh, and the nuance in there, there's something beautiful at play in the people who love the work they do, who love the people around them that they make the decision to stay. Uh, do you hear the nuance in that? Like, I, I, don't, I don't really want to belabor my point, but in a way I kind of do also. Um, the New Testament scholar James Brownson kind of writes about these communities in his book, Bible, Gender, Sexuality. And I'm going to read, it's a little bit of a lengthy quote, uh, but one that I think kind of calls out this complexity and one that I know when I first read it, I related to immensely. Uh, so he writes... On the surface, the gay or lesbian person is welcomed into the traditionalist fellowship, but the desires and the emotional orientation or disposition of the person's sexuality are shunned. Ironically, in this context, the more deeply the gay or lesbian person is welcomed and loved by the fellowship, the more profound the problem of shame becomes. Uh, I'll pause there. Brownson is his book focuses spe- like very specifically on on sexual minorities. Um, I believe a lot of these same things could be said about gender minorities and trans people in the church. I think a lot of the dynamics are at play, but he uses a very binary language in here. Uh, and he continues: the internalized message becomes something like this: these people love me so much, they must be right when they say that my sexual orientation is a manifestation of sinful brokenness. Therefore, I must resist this part of myself all the more insistently. Sometimes such a process is effective in helping a person who is confused about his or her sexual orientation move towards embracing the wider norms of society in his or her sexuality. Uh, But research shows that such change only happens in a small minority of relevant cases. And when this attempt to embrace the dominant culture... Uh, the dominant society's perspective on sexuality is unsuccessful. When desires for others of the same sex persist, the result is a deeply internalized sense of shame, frustration, and self-loathing. The self is divided, and shame becomes toxic. Shame always becomes toxic when it is constructed out of double messages. For example, we love you, but we abhor the way you operate emotionally. And these conflicting messages create divided souls. And those conflicts, precisely because they are so shameful, powerfully resist the light of day. They remain submerged, manifesting themselves in depression, scapegoating, sickness, anger towards others, or even suicide. I see people nodding their heads. And I think we of all people know how deep, how deeply the misuse of this spiritual gift, um, how much damage that can cause. Um, the damage of being forced to serve instead of using our actual gifts, one of which is living an authentic life. And to those of us who are in these spaces, who for a a variety of complicated and complex reasons decide to stay in these spaces, you are doing beautiful work. Uh, You're embodying this spiritual gift. Uh, And there may not be people in your communities who see you in the entirety of who you are, Uh, But know that we as your queer siblings and the divine are beside you. We're propping you up. We're sending you love. And we're welcoming every part of you to the fold. So I could could keep going. Uh, I could keep running through this list of spiritual giftings and tell stories about every single one of them. uh, And the ways that queer queer people manifest them. Uh, the gift of teaching. Uh, someone once told me that he thinks that every single person who is queer and who has decided to stay within some kind of faith tradition should get an honorary PhD for the amount of studying and teaching that we have to do to educate the people around us, right? Like, yeah, we're all doctorates. Um, the gift of encouragement. Uh, like I said, have you all seen Queer Eye? Like, that show. <laughs> so encouraging. Um, the gift of giving. Uh, the ways that our queer community care for our own, uh, is absolutely astounding. Uh, Those of us who open up our homes and our our limited resources 
to those siblings who need help when they're rejected uh, by their families, their churches, their communities. Uh, the gift of leading. I think every single person who has come out are leaders. Uh, we're role models. We're examples for every other person who's peeking through the closet door behind us. Uh, and mercy, like, oh my goodness, mercy. The amount of forgiveness and mercy that we show on a daily basis, uh, it's, it moves me to tears sometimes. Uh, that, that forgive them, God, for they know not what they do. These are spiritual gifts. Uh, they're beautiful, beautiful things. Uh, they're gifts that have been forged in fire. A, f- a few days ago, uh, I asked people who watched my Instagram story to answer the question, what would you say are some spiritual gifts of LGBTQ2 people? Uh, and it is okay if you want to pull out your phones right now and follow me. I'm Matthias Roberts. Um, that's fine. I'll, I'll just assume you're reading your Bibles. Um, and... Um, but I, I, had, I had so many people from all over the world weigh, weigh in on this question, and many of their answers were stunningly similar. Empathy, compassion, discernment, resiliency, perseverance, hospitality, honesty, holy sass, <laughs> yep, patience, love, the ability to see more deeply, fabulousness, Sensitivity, joy, kindness, encouragement, faith, divinely inspired style choices. Um, the, the list went on and on. Um, and, and I look at this list and it brought me to tears. Uh, and it makes me want to print it out and, and like nail it on, on the doors of every single non-affirming church on this continent uh, and, and say, do you see? Do you see what you're missing out on? Do you see the holy witness of these beautiful people you are locking out? We have giftings. And as I read these lists, the responses brought to mind another of the Apostle Paul's writings, the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, These are things that Paul says is evidence of the work of the divine within the world and within our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And what was most fun about this Instagram poll was it wasn't just queer people who answered. Uh, Roughly 20% of the respondents are people who who identify as straight. Uh, And that was encouraging to me because it it means that it's not just us who see these things manifested in in our lives. Uh, these giftings are also seen by, by people who have chosen to enter into relationship with us. Uh, and I, I, like, I, I just found that incredibly encouraging. Like, we're not just kind of like preaching to the choir saying, like, oh, we're amazing. And everyone else is like, well, are you? Like, um, <laughs> they're like, no, yeah, you got, you, you got it. Like, um, but it's interesting because the, the overwhelming response uh, was some variation of any of the gifts that everyone else has. Uh, the idea that queer and straight people alike, uh, we all drink from the same, the same pot of spiritual giftings. Uh, I, within this answer, I, I kind of read like, the idea that the divine shows no partiality, um, that the spiritual gifts within the scriptures are ours to claim, just like everyone else. Um, but at first, when that answer kind of started popping up, it was only straight people who were saying that. Uh, and, and I felt myself bristle a little bit, because uh, c- that, that happens whenever I kind of hear that phrase, like, we're all the same. Um, but then queer people started saying, saying the same answer as well, uh, claiming our ground, claiming our gifts. And I felt that bristling kind of start to settle a little bit. And I wondered, why, why did I feel so defensive when straight people said, we're all the same? Uh, yet I cheered on my queer friends when they said, we aren't any different. Um, and I believe that, that any time we say that this phrase, like we're all the same, uh, without attending to and paying attention to our particularity first, the ways that we're different, uh, we enter into erasure uh, and we capitulate to dominant culture. Uh, so it's straight washing, it's whitewashing, it's male washing, uh, the incredibly complex uh, amount of diversity within the creation 
that the divine has given us. Um, and so, so while I feel like we've been kind of wading into these waters of particularity for this entire talk, uh, I want to dive in a little bit deeper. Because while I absolutely believe that people who answered this question were all the same, uh, are right, I, I do believe that, I also think that we can say with certainty that there are some things, some giftings, that queer people bring to our communities because we are queer. And that's where we're going to turn. So when I began this talk, I joked, I am a spiritual gift. Uh, and I wasn't entirely kidding, because I think that queerness is a spiritual gift. Uh, the Reverend Elizabeth Edmond, in her book Queer Virtue, claims that Christianity itself is inherently liminal and inherently queer. She argues that queer people are uniquely positioned to understand some of those queer dynamics within the faith tradition. Uh, she's writing from a Christian context, uh, and, and she, she pretty solidly claims Christianity. Uh, and she writes about these, these three distinct truth claims of Christianity, that God came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ was killed, died, and rose from the dead, and that it's possible for any person to, uh, to perceive these truths and to join or form a community that worships this God and follows the ethical path laid out by Jesus. Uh, she argues that, that these three claims, uh, they dramatically and decisively rupture binaries that were previously thought to be fundamental truths. The binary of God and humanity, the binary of life and death, and the binary of religious boundaries. So for Edmund, God is in the very business of rupturing boundaries. And that's why she makes the claim that authentic Christianity is and must be queer. So I want, I want to take this idea and run with it. Uh, if our faith tradition is inherently queer, then might it be that embodying queerness in ourselves, in our bodies, uh, in the way that we move in the world, might this queerness truly be a gift, a gift of having the non-binary nature of the spiritual realm exist within us. My mom would occasionally use the word queer around the house in its most basic usage when I was growing up to describe something that was a little bit odd. Um, and, and for me growing up, it, it never had a negative connotation uh, until I turned 13. Uh, and, and I was in the Boy Scouts, uh, which is this, this national organization kind of existing of, of local clubs that focus on building outdoor skills for, for boys and men. And, and there were, at the time, they were incredibly homophobic. Queer people weren't allowed in at all. Women weren't allowed in at all. Um, they've, they've changed a little bit since then, but it's still a boys club. Um, I was so excited to join, though, when I was 12. Uh, the troop that I was joining did monthly campouts, uh, we, we would do lessons on knots and uh, how to make fires and how to survive in the wilderness. Uh, and since, since my parents kind of literally, literally met uh, in the middle of the, word, in the woods uh, working as wilderness guides, uh, this, this kind of love of the outdoors had, been, had bred, been bred into me. We were camping from like the moment I was born. Um, so I was excited to go camping every month. Uh, and in my scout troop, we also had weekly meetings every Tuesday night. Uh, and upon joining the troop, I realized that maybe my dreams of becoming the next master outdoorsman, they might be a little bit thwarted by the guys in my troop, uh, who immediately noticed uh, my quiet and somewhat effeminate nature, uh, and they labeled me as gay. And, and to cope with the bullying that began to happen every Tuesday night, uh, I convinced my best friend to join and we would wander off during the social time and join like, the one or two other kind of quiet guys who, I, I don't want to make assumptions, but, um, but we, would, we, would, we would just kind of be in the corner, uh, ignore the scorn that came from the rest of the troop, uh, and kind of just sit and salt. Not We wouldn't sit. We would like, have imaginary friends. We were, we were those people off in the corner. Um, <laughs> And one night, uh, my friend and I were walking back into the meeting space after kind of the free time was over, uh, and one of the older boys came up to us and asked, what do, you, what do you guys do over there? What are you, a bunch of queers? And I was taken aback. Um, I, I knew exactly what he was asking, but I'd never heard the word queer uh, used before to talk about sexuality. 
And the word confused me. Uh, it, it obviously confused my friend, too, uh, who later in the, in the car asked his mom what queer meant. Uh, she got defensive pretty quickly and, and asked. I mean, she almost like, threw on the brakes and was like, who's calling you that? Uh, and, and within a couple of weeks, my friend was no longer allowed to go to Boy Scouts. Uh, so I started begging my parents to let me quit. Uh, they eventually let me quit as well. Uh, but the word stuck with me. It had kind of a slimy quality to it. Uh, and, I, and I didn't hear it again for, for years uh, because gay was kind of the more preferred slur in the area that I grew up in. Um, but it scared me. What if they were right? What if I really was queer? And deep down inside, uh, I knew that they weren't very far away from the truth. So, so I can't really even imagine what that scared 13-year-old would think if I were to go back in time right now and, and tell him, don't worry about it, boo. Like, soon you're going to be kissing men and have a podcast named Queerology. Like, <laughs> woo. <laughs> but, but queer had a negative meaning for me. It was a bad word. And throughout history, it has had times when it has been used both as a slur and as a self-chosen term of identification. Uh, and to this day, uh, our community uh, is, is kind of divided around this word. Uh, there are some who really like it, some who really dislike it, uh, because of the great harm that it carried, especially in the 70s and the 80s. So I, so I want to acknowledge that when I talk about queerness being a spiritual gift. Uh, I want to honor that harm, uh, kind of bemoan the limits of language, uh, the word queer in its contemporary usage is really is the only word that I, that I know of which kind of expresses the binary breaking quality of identity. Um, but it's really difficult when language changes among generations. Um, and, and that can be really difficult um, as, we, as we try to unify and come together. But, but I think there's great power in taking a word that was once meant to break us down, to hurt us, to categorize us, and say in the face of that, uh, in the words of drag queen Bianca Del Rio, not today, Satan. Um, what was meant for harm has become good. And I will stand on this stage and name queerness as good, as a spiritual gift, as a gift that so many of us in this room have. When we talk about queering something, we mean breaking it out of a box. We take it and play with it. Uh, there's a little bit of fun thrown into the mix, a little bit of gravity as well. Uh, it's holy work. And if we, if we truly believe that God or the divine cannot be boxed, cannot be contained, cannot be placed within binary or easy categories, then by definition, God is queer. And I, I know that most, if not all of us in this room, have kind of moved well beyond that phase where we've had to wrestle with our queerness. Uh, but each and every one of us exists in a world which tells us to prod and to push and fit ourselves into heteronormative performative boxes. And I think, I know I do, many of us still have those voices that exist inside of us that say, hey, maybe tone it down a little. Or... What if I'm wrong? And I want to speak to those voices right now. What if this very thing that has caused us so much pain, this very thing which causes us to stand out in a room, the very thing that so many tell us have disqualified us from the family of God, what if this thing is a divinely ordained gift? What if our queerness in some weird, inexplicable way, is a very piece of the divine nature. What if embracing our queerness is embracing the nature of God? When I was working on my other master's degree in counseling psychology, I had a professor who, despite being a fairly well-known teacher around sexuality within the conservative Christian world, uh, he would constantly get up in front of the classroom and tell us, the moment you try to put a label on your sexuality, that's the moment your sexuality is going to surprise you. And he would stand at the front of that classroom almost every week and say, everyone is bisexual. In other words, everyone is queer. Uh, and, and he's coming from, like, incredibly conservative 
spaces. He teaches in those spaces. Um, so when I first heard him say that, I was like, what, what are you talking about? Like, um, I, I scoffed. And, and I thought, first, like, it's really weird that you, a straight white male who teaches about sexuality, who has been called homophobic before, would get up in front of a classroom and say everyone is bisexual. Uh, and, and second, I thought, well, I'm not. Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm a flaming homo. Like, <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm a solid six on the Kinsey scale. Like, 100% gay. Um, <laughs> but that, that was like four years ago. Um, and as I've continued to do my own work, uh, and as I've kind of begun to soften some of the labels that I put around myself for protection, um, I've realized that in some ways my professor is right. So I, I'm not standing here and coming out as bisexual. Uh, still pretty gay. Uh, but it, it raises an interesting point. And in, in, in my work as a psychotherapist, um, I've had my professor's words confirmed again and again and again. Uh, and I really have come to kind of believe in the truth that everyone is queer. We all have queer parts of our identities. Um, I, I don't really believe that there is such thing as exclusively homosexual or exclusively heterosexual. Um, just in the same way as the medical community is beginning to discover that there's no such thing as exclusively male or exclusively female. Uh, but, but here's the catch. Not, not everyone embraces this queerness. We like our boxes. We like our labels, uh, our categories. They help us to feel safe, protected. They help us identify within certain groups and ways of being. Uh, they're nice. In some ways, some ways, they're easy. Um, and, and I say this because I would imagine that there are some straight people in here, maybe, uh, wondering, what about me? Uh, and, and I say to you the same thing that I'm saying to all of us queer people. I'm asking us to do the work of paying attention to our own queerness, to the ways our very selves defy and transcend the labels we place upon them. In a similar way to how God cannot be placed in a box Neither can we. And, and as we do this work in our own lives, the better prepared we are to walk out into the world and use it there as well. If queerness is a spiritual gift, like all spiritual gifts, it's available to all people. So straight people, how can you pay attention to the ways queerness manifests within you? And queer people... How can we pay attention to the ways our identities break out of boxes, the boxes that we put upon ourselves? We're complex. So I'm, I'm going to pause here for a second, uh, because up until this point, I'll show you, I've been reading kind of like word for word. This is how I talk. Um, I, I'm trying this, this new experiment, though. I'm trying to kind of break out of that uh, and, and to get to the point of where I can write an outline uh, and, and speak from that instead of having to write out every word. Uh, because uh, an hour-long talk is 30 pages of writing, and that is ridiculous. Um, so I, I'm wondering if you could all maybe just bear with me as I try an experiment. I'm, I'm moving now to an outline. Uh, and <laughs> I've never done this before. Uh, so I, I'm hoping you can be a little bit gracious. Uh, and, and here we go, an, out, an outline. Um, <laughs> uh, so there's been this common thread uh, as, as I've done my podcast, Chorology. Uh, we're hitting our 55th episode on Tuesday. It comes out every week. Um, thank you. <laughs> and... And one of the common threads throughout this podcast is, is this idea of the intersections of faith and sexuality. Um, and there's kind of in this common thread, not everyone, but this common thread in these stories, I, I ask the question, and you'll hear me ask it again later today, how do you identify and how would you say that your faith or faith spirituality has helped inform that identity? And there's, there's kind of been this common thread throughout that of this idea that I could never get away from God. Like, I tried. I ran away. The church hurt me. There was something about God that, that I couldn't get away from, about this spirituality. And, and would you, I'm wondering if you could entertain this idea with me, that maybe, for queer people, that our queerness might be that part of God that we can never get away from. Might that be God within our queerness, for those of us who haven't been able to, to fully leave the faith? And... and 
I know there, there are many, like the, the research and the statistics out there of queer people who still identify as, as people of faith. They may not go to church, but it's astonishingly high. We have a form of spirituality just within us. Um, and I, I wonder if that might be the piece of the divine nature, uh, the queerness that is within God. Um, God is truly within. Uh, the second spiritual gift of queer people, and I'm, I'm realizing, I'm, I go till 10.30, right? Is that? Okay, or when am I going till 10? 10.15, okay, cool, we got this. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> um, I, I don't have a ton left, but that's, um, we're good. So, so the, second, the second spiritual gift of queer people, I think, is, is the ability to see oppression. Uh, the gift of discernment that I was talking about earlier. Uh, I think we have it kind of finely polished within ourselves. We see oppression where it exists. Uh, or some of us do. Or in ways that, that directly influence us, we see queer oppression uh, out there in the world, kind of everywhere it is. Um, and, and I think that ability to see oppression uh, it can, it can do us a service. It can also, I think, keep us from seeing oppression in other areas as well. Um, so, so we've tasted oppression, uh, but, but as, I, as I look out in this audience and, and kind of look around, um, I, a lot of people in this room are white. Um, and when we talk about oppression, um, I think it's really easy for us to, to think, because I'm, I'm an oppressed person, because I'm a minority um, in, in one area of my life, therefore I, I'm an expert on oppression. I'm an expert on what it's like to be oppressed. Um, and that's not exactly true, uh, especially for those of us who are white. Uh, because oppression doesn't, it doesn't exist in just kind of this binary way, you're either oppressed or you're not. We have intersecting layers of oppression. Uh, so for those of us are, who are queer, like that, that is one layer of oppression. Uh, but like for me, like I'm white, I'm cisgender, I'm male, um, I am from the US. Um, there's all of these other layers of privilege uh, that, that make it so that I am also blind to oppression. Uh, when in grad school we had we had to take a class on kind of multicultural studies and, and counseling um, and and I, I kind of walked into that class feeling pretty good about it thinking like I'm gay like I got this like I, I know I know what it's like to be oppressed like I'm going to be able to I'll, I'll do great at this class um, that that idea like I'm I'm not racist I'm gay like um, and and I think a, a lot of us think that way. Like, I, I know I absolutely did. Like, I can't be racist because I'm gay. Like, I, I have this ability to see oppression uh, within myself, and therefore I don't oppress others. Uh, that's, that's not true. And, and so this ability to see oppression, we can, we can see it within ourselves and in the ways that we have been oppressed. I think that's the gift um, because we can acknowledge where we have been oppressed and the hurt and pain of that, and we can use, then use that oppression to start doing our own work on the ways that we oppress others. So for us white people, um, that's, that's kind of my challenge within that gift as well. It's how, do we, how do we use our experiences of being oppressed as queer people to then look at the ways that we are oppressors uh, to look at the ways that our skin color affords us privilege. Um, we can use where we are oppressed to cue others into oppression. Uh, it doesn't make us experts, but it can help us kind of, kind of move forward. Uh, I, I remember a couple years ago, Justin Leem, who at the time was the executive director of the Gay Christian Network, uh, at a conference in Houston, I believe, so two years ago, uh, he got up on stage and, and talked about, about this exact concept, this kind of idea that, that queer people, um, we a lot of times think that we can't be oppressors because we are oppressed ourselves. Um, and, and he said something that, that 
I thought was really interesting. He said, if, if I wasn't gay, I don't know that I would ever see that there is oppression in the rest of the world. Um, and, I, and I think that's the gift. Because I know for me, once I woke up to the fact that maybe I'm not as oppressed as I think I am, maybe I, I hold a massive amount of privilege within my, my body, within my personhood, the way I'm able to move in the world, once I woke up to that, um, I was able to start seeing where oppression exists in other places. And, and it's a continual work. It's not something we arrive at. Um, I, I don't think, in, in any spaces, I don't think we can ever name ourselves as allies. Um, that's, that's a word that must, a term that must be given to us by the people that we're trying to advocate for along beside of. Um, so, so that's, that's that second part, oppression. Uh, and the ways that, that it interplays. Uh, we can see it. Uh, we also need to use it to take a, a long, hard look at ourselves, too, uh, in the ways that we, we continue to, uh, to perpetuate oppression. Um, so, so to wrap up, um, I, I want to leave us with a little bit of a blessing. So, so we talked about spiritual gifts, uh, the ways that I believe that queerness is a spiritual gift, the ways that we can use um, our oppression to, to lead us into the world, into justice, into making the world a, a better place for, for each and every one of us. Um, and those are things that I want us to do. Um, but this is, this is a blessing that I like to give and, and speak over us um, almost every time I speak. Uh, it's from a pastor named Nadia Boltz-Weber. Uh, she's a Lutheran pastor... She actually just left her church, uh, House for All Sinners and Saints in Denver, uh, and is now doing writing and speaking full-time. But but she wrote this blessing uh, based off of the Beatitudes, uh, which are are found in the Christian scriptures. Uh, She she put a little bit of a twist on them. Uh, So so I'd like it if you could maybe get into some sort of comfortable meditative space, if you'd like. Close your eyes, leave them open, whatever is comfortable for you. I'm going to read this over us to close. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the agnostics. Blessed are they who doubt, those who aren't sure, who can still be surprised. Blessed are they who are spiritually impoverished and therefore not so certain about everything they no longer take in new information. Blessed are those who have nothing to offer. Blessed are they for whom nothing seems to be working. Blessed are the preschoolers who cut in line at communion. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You are of heaven, and Jesus blesses you. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are they for whom death is not an abstraction. Blessed are they who have buried their loved ones, for whom tears are as real as an ocean. Blessed are they who have loved enough to know what loss feels like. Blessed are the mothers of the miscarried. Blessed are they who don't have the luxury of taking things for granted anymore. Blessed are they who can't fall apart because they have to keep it together for everyone else. Blessed are the motherless, the alone, the ones from whom so much has been taken. Blessed are those who still aren't over it yet. Blessed are they who laughed again when for so long they never thought they would. You are of heaven, and Jesus blesses you. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who no one else notices, the kids who sit alone at middle school lunch tables, the laundry guys at the hospital, the sex workers, and the night shift street sweepers. Blessed are the losers and the babies and the parts of ourselves that are so small, the parts of ourselves that we don't want to make eye contact with, a world that only loves the, the parts of ourselves that don't want to make eye contact with a world that only loves the winners. Blessed are the forgotten. Blessed are the closeted. Blessed are the unemployed, the unimpressive, the underrepresented. Blessed are the teens who have have to figure out ways to hide the new cuts on their arms. Blessed are the meek. You are of heaven, and Jesus blesses you. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the wrongly accused, the ones who never catch a break, the ones for whom life is hard. 
for they are those with whom Jesus chose to surround himself. Blessed are those without documentation. Blessed are the ones without lobbyists. Blessed are the foster kids and the trophy kids and the special ed kids and every other kid who just wants to feel safe and loved and never does. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are they who know there has to be more than this because they are right. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are those who make terrible business decisions for the sake of people. Blessed are the burnt-out social workers and the overworked teachers and the pro bono case takers. Blessed are the kids who step between the bullies and the weak. Blessed are they who delete hateful, homophobic comments off their friends' Facebook pages. Blessed are the ones who have received such real grace that they are no longer in the position of ever deciding who the quote-unquote deserving poor are. Blessed is everyone who has ever forgiven me when I didn't deserve it. Blessed are the merciful for they totally get it. Thank you all so much for letting me join you. Oh, it's been an absolute honor.